Scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. Uh, this can be found on page 957 of the Pew Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take this one home with you as, as a gift. We'd love for you to have, have that. Here's God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall." No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and uh, delighted to see each one of you uh, here this morning. Thank you, Dan, for reading God's Word for us. And um, as we open this passage and look at it together, uh, I'd love to begin our time uh, and ask for God's help in understanding and applying His Word in our lives. So let's begin and do that now. Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, that you speak and we ask that you would give us hearts uh, and minds to listen and to hear. Would you, um, by the power of your spirit, um, bring to life hearts that are so frozen and cold? Um, would the love of Christ pierce our hearts like a spear this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, ever since I was a child, I've been fascinated uh, with World War II, the World War II era and the history um, of that time period. As a little kid, I would check out books uh, from the library, um, lots of books from the library about that time period, and, and still I'm fascinated and love learning about that time in our history and in the history of the world. In fact, just this weekend, Rachel and I watched The Imitation Game and uh, loved it about the Alan Turing and the breaking of the Enigma Code. And whenever people find out that I really enjoy this period of history, uh, they often tell me, Bill, you've got to read Unbroken or you've got to see the movie Unbroken. And, uh, and so finally, uh, this past week, I began reading uh, the book. And uh, let me tell you, it's riveting. You all were right. Uh, I'm, I'm loving it. And uh, the book Unbroken is the story of Louis Zamperini. 
And Lewis was, was a runner. He was an Olympian. And at one point, he even held the record for the fastest mile in the world, clocking in at just over four minutes on a mile. And during World War II, he was on a bomber uh, that was shot down. And he was a tough individual, one of the toughest and the plane, when it was shot down, uh, landed in the Pacific Ocean, and he spent 47 days in a life raft the size of a bathtub without supplies drifting in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. He caught a shark with his bare hands, and he ate it. And he survived all those 47 days only to be captured by the Japanese, imprisoned enslaved, tortured, starved, and systematically abused for two years. And he lived through it. America won the war, and he was released from the prison camp, and he came home, he got married, and after all that, he lived happily ever after because he was so strong. No, not at all. If you know the story, when he comes home, the most amazing thing about the story is how ironic the title is of Unbroken. The fact is that when he came home, this person who is perhaps one of the strongest individuals that I've ever encountered, both physically, emotionally, mentally, Louis Zamperini returned from the hells that he had known, and he was deeply, tragically, and very understandably broken constant nightmares, so much that at one point he awoke in the midst of one of them realizing that he was strangling his pregnant wife. And he sunk into alcoholism and was haunted by bitter rage and desire for revenge. You see, unbroken is a myth. No one is unbreakable. And if a man like Louis Zamparini as incredible as he was, if, if he can be broken, I mean, this guy is as close to a real superhero as they come. If he can crumble, if he wasn't strong enough, then, then what hope is there for me? I mean, I could be crushed in a heartbeat by my circumstances or even more likely by my own failures and shortcomings. The truth is you can have your life completely put together. You can be as strong as Zamparini was. I mean, I mean look at us as a, as a people, as a whole. Today, we are the wealthiest, most educated people who have ever lived in history. But we're not as strong as we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. Now, some of you already know this, and, and actually maybe that's why you're here this morning. You've been through something that's, that's demonstrated to you how weak you really are. Something in your life has crushed you. It's, it's overwhelmed you. Maybe it's a circumstance, health, or series of bad decisions. Your confidence has been stripped, and, and you're just trying to pick up the pieces but regardless of where you're at this morning, we're not the first people to experience this. Now, if you've been with us as we've been walking through this letter that Paul's written to the Corinthian church, we've been working through this section in the midst of this letter on giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel. And specifically for the Corinthians, this meant knowing when and when not to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And there were those who were strong in the church and there were those who were weak but again, we're not often as strong as we think we are. 
And this is where we have to understand how this passage that uh, Dan read for us fits into the broader flow of this letter and the argument that Paul is making. Because Paul is saying two things in this broader section from chapter 8 really all the way to the end of chapter 10. He's saying, one, meeting, eating meat sacrificed to idols, that's, that's okay outside of the temple. I mean, once that meets outside of the temple, don't stress whether it had been offered to an idol or not. Meat is meat, idols are nothing. Just enjoy it. However, Paul is also saying that eating meat sacrificed to idols in the temple as part of a worship ceremony, now that's not okay. And while the idea of, of worshiping idols in temples doesn't really seem like a huge temptation for uh, probably most Kansas Cityans here in 2015. What I think we're going to see as we walk through this text together this morning is that we're actually a lot more vulnerable to this than we think. And we're going to see three lessons in the text this morning. Lesson one is that blessings are not always a sign of God's favor. Blessings aren't always a sign of God's favor. Second, we're going to see that we become what we worship. The God that we worship is what we become like. And then third, we're going to see that true worship is actually the only way out. True worship is the only way out. There's a way out, and true worship is the only way. So the first lesson we see as we look at the passage is that God's blessings are not always a sign of his favor. And I don't know about you, but I tend to take credit for the good things of my, in my life, and then I blame God for the bad things in my life. So things are going well. I usually attribute that to somehow my success or my faithfulness or my abilities. And if things are going poorly, um, I wonder, what, you know, what's God doing? And so here's what happens. I mean, you, got a, you have a decent job. You, your health is, is pretty good. Um, you still like your kids. And you, and you go to church, and maybe you even volunteer, and you give, and overall things are going really well in your life. You're, you're happy at least most of the time, which for most of us, right, I mean, that's the, the best we can hope for. We're, we're happy most of the time, which has to mean, right, that, that if there's a God, he must be okay with how I'm living. I mean, right, if, if things are going well, God must be at least decently happy with me. He must be doing something right. But look again at verses 1 through 6 in the passage where Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers, our ancestors, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. See, Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us that just because we experience blessing, that is, we experience success and, and good things in our life, that doesn't automatically mean that God is pleased with us. Success, prosperity, blessings, these things don't mean that God endorses or improves your lifestyle or choices. So, so take, for example, just because this room uh, is full of people each Sunday, that doesn't mean that God approves of me 
or my heart or my motives. Pastor and author Paul Tripp points out, the success of a ministry is always more of a picture of who God is than a statement about those people who he's using for his purpose. And this isn't just true of pastors, and it wasn't just true back then. It's true for all of us here this morning. And verse 6 means that what happened to them, them being the ancient Israelites, what happened to them can happen to us. You can have everything going for you, and you can still be the worst. Israel had so many blessings, and yet they made so many mistakes. And in these verses, what Paul is recounting is what happened to the Israelites right after God rescued them from the land of Egypt, and that those things happened as an example for us. Now, God's rescue of his people from the land of Egypt, from Pharaoh's grasp, that's literally the stuff of movies, right? I mean, how many movies have been made about that? The, the Prince of Egypt, the Ten Commandments, Exodus, Gods, and Kings. All of those films, granted with significant amount of Hollywood license, they, they tell the incredible, miraculous acts that God used to rescue his people. The plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and th- those were just the beginning God's presence in in the form of a cloud and in the pillar of fire is leading his people. I mean, if anyone had had an experience with God, had seen him up close, I mean, it was these people. I mean, have you ever had a moment in your life where you prayed or thought, God, if I could just believe in you, if you would just show up, if you could be manifest in some kind of physical form, or if you would just lead me, if you'd just give me a sign, I'd know what decision to make. Well, Israel, they got that moment repeatedly, and they still rejected God. When God led them into the arid wilderness without any kind of food or water, he provided through miraculous means bread, this manna from heaven. And then when they complained that that wasn't enough, that they wanted meat like they had back in Egypt, he actually sends a giant sort of cloud of birds, and birds just start falling out of the sky so that they have meat to eat. And God causes water to flow out of a rock when they needed water, and they were stuck in the desert. And and Paul actually identifies that, that rock with Jesus. Rock was a common name for God in the Old Testament. You read in the Psalms, God is my rock and my salvation. So, Paul's point is, look, these people had everything going for them. Even this sort of, in some mysterious way, Jesus is present with them through these saving acts. They all, Paul is careful to say, they all partook in these blessings. And yet God was not pleased with, not just some, he was not pleased with most of them. You see, receiving blessing Having good things happen to you is not always a sign of God's favor. They got everything we ask for, and they still rejected and disobeyed God. And they fell into idolatry. Not just the golden calf moment, which is what is being talked about here, but in lots of ways in the history. And so the question is why? Why would they do this? How could they do this? Especially because idol worship, it seems so foreign to us today, right? Right? 
mean, none of us are, are tempted, I don't think, on a regular basis to, to cut down a tree like in that psalm that John read for us and, and make half of it to put in the fireplace and then carve the other half to fall down and worship. But it's actually not as bizarre as it seems. So I want to invite you with me to put yourself as best you can in the shoes of the Israelites during this time. So just imagine, strap on your sort of Middle Eastern sandals. And all you know is slavery. You see, they, the Israelites, they had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. What did they do? They were making bricks for 400 years. It's all your parents knew. It's all your grandparents knew. It's all your great-grandparents knew. It's making bricks. I mean, you and your family have been enslaved for longer than the United States has, has been a country. And now, all of a sudden, God rescues you, and you're free, and you're in the land of Canaan, and it's a rich and fertile land, except you don't know the first thing about farming. And so you begin to try to eke out an existence in what is, yes, a rich and fertile land, but you don't know anything about farming. And, and that first round of crops, it just doesn't do very well. And so you look at your Canaanite neighbor and say, what, your crops are doing so well, what are, what are you doing? And they say, well, you need to fertilize this time of year, and well, you planted too early, and you need to do this watering, and, and oh, also, and you need to make sure you offer sacrifices to Baal, the storm gods, so the rains come, and make sure you also visit the fertility prostitutes so that your land will be fertile. And at first, you say, well, I'm not going to do the, the idle stuff, but I really, okay, so you do your, those tips, and it's good advice, and you plant and water, and, but you're still, your, you're still not very good at it. And next year, your crops still don't do very well, and you got to feed your family, and maybe you think, well, maybe just one or two sacrifices to the storm god. Maybe just one visit to the fertility cult prostitutes to help move things along with the rains. And you're not rejecting God, of course not, but you're just kind of getting a little extra help on the side. And we do the same thing today, don't we? You start a new job, a new career, and, and things are hard, right, as they always are in a new field, and we aren't advancing like we hoped, and, and we look around at our neighbors, our coworkers, and, and they give us some really good tips, right? Well, you should use this system, or this customer management software, or this app, or, or manage your schedule this way. It's really good advice, and it's really helpful. But then they say, oh, and also, I mean, you really need to start working weekends, I mean, you'll have time with your family later, but the, the, I mean, the money's for them anyway, right? I mean, if you're not putting in 80 hours a week, you're, you're never going to get ahead. And, and also, you're too nice. You've got to be more ruthless with your colleagues and less honest with your customers. And before long, you're sacrificing to Baal as well. I mean, we're not anything like those people, Right? Next thing you know, you've transferred your trust and you're worshiping these other things. And life starts to go well. I mean, you're finally getting ahead. But that blessing, that success, does not mean that God is pleased with you. And if you think it is, what are you going to think when it falls apart? I mean, isn't it ironic that, that we take credit for the good in our lives, but we blame God for the bad? 
The, the Corinthians, they had everything going for them, and, and they committed the same sins that Israel did, and we do the same thing. They had God's blessing, but that doesn't mean they're on the right path. And we do the same thing. We look at our strengths and our success, and we make assumptions. So, so you've got money. That doesn't mean that you're running your business like you should. I mean, your kids are compliant and, and they get good grades. It doesn't make you a great parent automatically. And you come to church every Sunday and, and you take communion. It doesn't make you a Christian. In fact, suffering is often the result of obeying God and doing what he's called you to do. Sometimes those who are most faithful, in fact, suffer the most. In fact, all Christians suffer to some degree or another. One pastor theologian put it this way, God only had one son without sin, but he has no sons without suffering. God only had one son without sin, but he has no sons without suffering. Jesus was, was the son of God and he was sinless, and yet all of us as children suffer, and even Jesus suffered. If Jesus, the very sinless Son of God, suffered when he was here on earth, why do we expect any less for us? So the question is, what are you resting in? God or his blessings? His strength or your strength? It's a subtle difference, isn't it? And yet, one is idolatry. It's like eating meat sacrificed in an idolatrous temple, and the other is, is worship to the living God. With one, there is life, and with another, there is death. Being broken or serving the unbreakable God. Here's the test. I mean, what could you live without, and what couldn't you live without? What would break you if it were taken from you? What would you trade for Jesus? Whatever that thing is, maybe it's a spouse, a career, a reputation, a child. That's your true rest. That's what you're actually worshiping. That's what your functional God is. It's not what God wants. He wants us to love him, the blesser, not just the blessings. For the first time, I, I've felt that in my life at points where we have Lucy, 16 months old, and every once in a while she'll climb in my arms, and I'm like, oh, she's so happy to see me, and really she just wants that thing that's like behind me, um, the sippy cup that I'm holding, or, and Rachel will say, oh, she doesn't want me, she wants my things. Don't we do that to God all the time? And many of us would gladly trade God for his blessings any day. If it came down to making a choice between the blesser and the blessings, we'll take the blessings. Thank you very much. And this brings us to the second lesson, that the God we worship is the God that we become like. We become what we worship we become what we worship. You see, all of us are worshipers. It's written in our code like DNA. And you see it at the sporting event. You see it at the, the One Direction concert, uh, RIP, Zane, sorry about that. Um, you, you see it in food and sex and art. Every one of us worships something or someone, uh, probably both. But so what? 
Why did God kill all those Israelites? I mean, isn't that a little kind of a disturbing point of this passage? But it's because we become what we worship, either to our ruin or to our restoration. If you're taking notes, maybe jot that down. We become what we worship, either to our ruin or to our restoration. You see, Paul describes their idolatry in verses 6 through 11. He says, Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he says, Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, these people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Play is a euphemism for uh, sexual immorality. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. You see, worshiping something other than God is always what ruins us. And Paul makes it very clear that this wasn't just about them, that this is about us now. These things were written down for our instruction. They're an example for us. You become what you worship. If you worship success, you'll become the kind of person who will do anything for success. If you worship money, Greed will overtake you. Sex, and you'll never be satisfied. Your kids, and you will always be demanding and overbearing, or you'll be utterly disappointed. And you see God's judgment here. It's both active punishment, but it's also him simply giving us what we want. If you decide you need something other than God, you'll get that thing in the end, but it leads to death. And you see, the more that you give to an idol, the less you get. I was actually, I was reminded of this this week. I was at a conference in Orlando, and the conference center had this incredible breakfast buffet. I mean, probably actually the best breakfast buffet I've ever seen. I mean, everything from made to order omelets and pancakes, and then they had smoked salmon and, and mountains of fresh berries and dried fruit. And I mean, it just, it just kept stretching on and on. It was probably 50 foot of, of buffet. It was amazing. And of course, it was all you can eat. Um, but the more times you go back, the less good it tastes. And eventually, it'll make you sick. We become what we worship. We were made to be like God. We're created in his image. And anything less than that is a denial of our humanity and it leads to death. And that's what we see here. God judges the Israelites. It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? It makes me uncomfortable. God killing all those people right there in the middle of history. But listen, God just gives us what we want he is the only source of life. But if we reject him and worship other things, we're choosing death. And whether that death happens now through direct intervention of God in like, like that, it would, like it happened with the Israelites, or if it's just a few years later at the end of our natural life, the result is the same. God will judge us. And if you've spent your entire life telling him you want nothing to do with him? Or if you live your life in such a way that it demonstrates that you want nothing to do with him? 
That's exactly what you'll get. You'll have nothing to do with him. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to the thing that has them. He says, they are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. And then he says these powerful words. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? So the question is, who are we becoming? Dallas Willard, a USC philosopher, was keen to point out that we are always being formed. We're always being formed. That spiritual formation or spiritual deformation is happening constantly. Whether or not we choose it, whether or not we're conscious of it, your work, your family, your friends, what you watch and listen to, what you long for and shop for and pine after, what you watch endless YouTube video product reviews of, those things are forming you spiritually. You see, formation, spiritual formation, it doesn't just happen when you sit down to read your Bible or when you come here on a Sunday and sing songs together. It's happening constantly, even in the most mundane and basic moments of life, because really those are the real moments of life, right? This is, this is kind of artificial life in a sense. You can come and for an hour put on a happy face. Real life is washing the dishes, cleaning the cat litter, paying the bills. What is your attitude? Where are your thoughts in those moments? Who are you becoming in those moments? See, we're not as strong as we think we are. You may think you're unbreakable, but those things, they've given you life. You think they've given you life, but they will keep demanding from you. But there is a way out of the sticky, deadly web of self-love. It isn't hopeless. Because it is true, everything you worship will ultimately demand your life. But there's only one treasure that's actually given its life for you. And it's only when you worship him that you can ever truly be free. Worship, true worship is the only way out. Look at verses 13 and 14 if you have your Bible open. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I mean, all of us experience temptation, don't we? It doesn't matter if you're a kid or an adult, if you're a Christian or or not a Christian. We all experience temptation. And temptation is desiring something that you know is wrong, often something you've told other people is wrong, that you've gotten upset with other people for doing because it's wrong. And it's a massive part of our experience in the broken world. 
And we, every one of us, have hearts and minds whose default setting is to love anything other than God. As my counseling professor in seminary used to say, we're all born asking the question, how can I be happy apart from God? And resisting temptation can be agony. I mean, can it? I mean, we've even moments of temptation, resisting it can be agony. Wes Hill, who wrote the books Washed and Waiting and Spiritual Friendship, he recounts a story of his philosophy professor um, at Wheaton College and he, that this professor shared in class. And the professor said, I once faced a temptation that was so persistent, so overwhelming, that I literally believed my whole world would go dark if I refused to give into it. And he said, all I could do was scream to the Holy Spirit to keep me from it. Have you ever battled temptation like that? I mean, many of us haven't, myself included, because we've given in way before it's gotten to that point. But the promise of this verse is that God provides a way out. He is faithful. The temptation you're facing, Paul says, is common. This means that no matter how unique, how unprecedented it feels in the moment, this is not more than anyone else has had to bear. One of the biggest lies that Satan will say in the moment to you of temptation is that no one else has ever felt like this. No one else has ever been able to resist this, but it's a lie. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to resist when it comes to sin. It doesn't mean that there won't be circumstances in your life that are overwhelming, but when it comes to being tempted to sin, there's always a way out. Which means, first of all, that your temptation is not a surprise to him either. He's not toying with you, but he's allowed it in your life. And he knows that you can beat it, not because you're stronger or you're better than that, but because he's stronger and he's better. Paul says that there's nothing you'll face as far as the temptation is concerned that you can't endure. He'll always provide a way of escape. And it doesn't say that it'll be easy. In times it will be agony. It doesn't say that it will be something that you'll want to do to fight temptation, but there always will be a way out. So yes, maybe you want to be successful in life at any cost, but maybe the way out of your workaholism is that you never achieve those dreams. Or maybe it's a relationship that you know you have to cut off. Or maybe it's lust and, and you need to get rid of your smartphone. I don't know what it is that you're fighting, but I do know there's a way out. It might be drastic, but there is a way out. And so the question here is where are you fleeing? Paul commands us to flee idolatry, but in fleeing from something, we're always fleeing to something else. You can't flee to nothing. And where we flee is as important as the fleeing itself. Because if we just end up fleeing to another idol, then we're no better off. We've just traded one counterfeit God for another. And if this is the case, Satan is still happy and you're just as in danger of ending up like the Israelites. In fact, you're probably in more danger because you think you fled and you're not aware of the danger you're in. So, for example, if you have made your career an idol, if that's the thing where you're getting your identity, maybe you, you become convicted of that and you say, well, 
well, I'm going to focus all my energies on my family. I'm going to, I'm going to live for my weekends, for my leisure time. Well, all you've done in that moment is just trade one idol for another. You used to get your identity from your work, now you're getting it from your family. You so many times we also flee temptation through pride. I mean, think about what we say to ourselves in the moments when we're being tempted. What we often say to our kids in the moment when they're being tempted. What do we often say? Well, you're better than that. Good people don't do those things. You're a better person than that. You're stronger than that. But what have we done in that moment? We've just made ourself, our strength, our pride, our self-righteousness, our good record, we've just made that an idol. You see, fleeing from idols means fleeing to Jesus. True worship is the only way out. Pastor Tim Keller explains this so beautifully. He says, if you're a Christian and you're dealing with enslaving habits, it's not enough to say, bad Christian, stop it. It's not enough to beat yourself up or merely try harder and harder and harder. How many of you, how many of us have been in that place? He says, the real reason you're having a problem with an enslaving habit is because you're not tasting God. And Tim says, I'm not talking about believing God or even obeying God. I'm talking about tasting, tasting God. You see, the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and be moved by it, moved to tears and moved to laughter, moved by a God who is and what he has done for you. And this needs to be happening all the time. God is not a hobby. He's not an avocation. He's not something you do on the side. He's everything. And until he's at the bright center of your life, you'll never be free of those things. True worship, having all in Christ, that's the only way. For him to topple idols in your life and in mine, we have to believe he's better, that he's worth it. You've got to believe the life he calls us to is better both now and forever. And you see, that's what Louis Zamperini learned in the end. He was broken. Understandably, he was shattered, consumed by rage and depression and alcoholism, and he hated God. He even forbade his wife from, from going to church. But then he heard a man, Billy Graham, talking about this guy named Jesus. And it made him even angrier. The author of Unbroken puts it this way. She writes, Lewis pushed past the congregation members in his row and charged for the exit. His mind was tumbling. He felt enraged and violent on the edge of explosion. He wanted to hit someone. But as he was running, he had another flashback. He saw how God had kept him alive. It was the last flashback he would ever have. He felt supremely alive, and he gave himself to the one who was stronger. In the morning after that Billy Graham service, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, his captors hadn't come into his dreams. He would never have those dreams again. Never. He felt a profound peace. 
And while he thought of all of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he suffered, but the divine love that had intervened and saved him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that his captors had striven to make him. In a single, silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, his helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. Not because he was stronger, but because he found someone who's stronger. We are not unbreakable. Temptations surround, idols overcome, but we have Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. Jesus is the true and better wilderness who passed the test, the true and better Israel who passed the test in the wilderness. Yet Jesus was broken for our sake, the one who was truly unbroken and unbreakable. He was beaten beyond recognition, shattered and torn, crucified, broken so that I could be remade. Yes, you and I are broken and breakable, and we will continue to break down, and eventually everything will come to pieces in our death. But God allowed himself to be broken, so that if he is the one we flee to, we will be raised from the dead, never to break again. And we will enjoy life unbroken with our Savior, our unbroken, unstoppably victorious Savior and King. No, we are not as strong as we think we are. But he is strong enough for all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would we find you supremely worthy? Even now, would you fill our hearts, would you fill my heart with in our minds the goodness of who you are so that all these other little lesser things that we're tempted to get our identity and our hope and our meaning from, that we just see them for what they are, good things, but not ultimate things. Would you break the pattern of enslaving sins in our lives through just delight and joy in Jesus who has given us everything? We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.